Well, thank you for listening to this podcast on the go, where we talk some sports, community activities, lifestyle trends, and more. I'm David Endress. You may know me as one of the hosts of Matra Day Radio's Morning Blend. And if you do listen to the Morning Blend, you probably have heard me talk numerous times about fitness, exercise, food, and of course, faith. That is why I am really excited to talk with my guest today, Dr. Kevin Vost. Kevin is the author of more than 20 Catholic books, which you can find through Sophia Institute Press, but his latest book is the one I just finished reading and really enjoyed it. It's titled, You Are That Temple, A Catholic Guide to Health and Holiness. Kevin, thank you so much for joining the On The Go podcast. Well, thank you, David. It's my pleasure to be here today. Well, let's just start this way. Why don't you give our listeners just a little bit of background on yourself? Sure. Yeah, I guess I'll start with my my background uh, as a Catholic. I basically say I was born and raised Catholic, went to a Catholic grade school and high school, church every Sunday, though we didn't really talk about Christ and the faith much at home. In my late teens, I was interested in philosophy and read some of the wrong philosophers, and I considered myself an atheist for the next 25 years. Until in my early 40s, you know, kind of through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, I ended up reading St. Thomas Aquinas for the first time and realized that everything that uh, drew me away from the faith had been beautifully answered over 700 years before. So I came back to Christ in my early 40s, almost 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as the book goes, You Are That Temple on Health and Fitness, I have kind of three areas that I think are relevant. My professional training was as a clinical psychologist and specifically in neuropsychology. I worked at a medical center's uh, Alzheimer's center. I also did college teaching on the side, which was mostly developmental psychology, focusing on on lifespan, which is like womb to tomb, you know, the whole lifespan, or psychology of adolescence or psychology of aging. So I'm kind of attuned to to different health and fitness uh, issues, how they impact us at every part of our, our life. Now, a second area that goes way farther back, uh, I've loved weightlifting since the second grade back in the 1960s. I, I saw a weightlifter on TV. I remember I, I demanded that my dad go get me a barbell set. <laughs> and thankfully, he, he did. Right. So, so I played with the weights for a few years, but by about seventh grade, I, I just was bit by the bug and, and did it ever since. So, you know, I competed in strength, sports, bodybuilding, powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting, uh, tug-of-war teams, uh, the Highland Games where you put on a kilt and toss Wow. The, the tree trunk, the caber. Yeah. So a variety of things like that. Yeah. And I also worked as a weightlifting and, and fitness instructor when I went through college. So so I've always been keenly interested in, in exercise. And then when I got older, I did some endurance activities too, like distance running. But kind of a third area that, that specifically ties into this book for me, my, my full-time main career for, for 32 years was doing mental and physical disability uh, cases for the Social Security Administration. So, again, from children through adulthood. So I kind of saw what was going on, you know, firsthand in our nation. It was from 1984 to 2016. Right. When we had the rise of various health epidemics like obesity, diabetes, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and, and other things. So so in a sense, for the subject matter relevant to this book, it's my background in, in brain-behavior relationships, in strength training, and my awareness of the impact of disability on the body kind of inspired me to try to share what I knew 
uh, on this topic. Uh, That is awesome. So in the introduction of your book, you have a passage from the Bible's 1 Corinthians that I think really sums it all up. So I'll I'll read this passage. It says, and many people are familiar with this, but it reads, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. At that temple, you are. I got to tell you, that just, to me, Kevin, that just, you know, says it right there. Eat right, exercise, and take care of the body that God gave you. Yeah, exactly. You know, St. Paul just wrote that. That's so powerfully and beautifully in 1 Corinthians 3. Then even three chapters later, he returns to the theme of the body is the temple. And so he also says, you know, do you not know that your body is a temple, the Holy Spirit within? He said, so glorify God in your body. So, yeah, we're called to show God thanks, you know, to show God gratitude for these bodies by trying to take reasonable, proper care of them. Right. Yeah. And look, I'm far from perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I I do try to take care of myself. Yet, you know, here we are today in America with all the knowledge, all the science about food and fitness. Yet, as you talk about in your book, obesity rates are at the highest they have ever been. What's happening? Yeah, they sure have. And to put it into perspective, I was born in 1961 and and uh, then a less than 15% of the U.S. population was considered obese, and now it's approaching 45%. The last number I saw was 42, so it's almost tripled. And among children, it's, it's almost quadrupled. So, yeah, we've had this huge increase in our, in our body weights. One study showed, I think it's like they said the average American now weighs something like 25 pounds more than they did 40 years ago. So mm. something's gone on there. Yeah. And when you get that obesity, things follow from it. Like, like diabetes has also shown similar increases in this condition called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, where our livers are becoming, you know, encrusted, uh, you know, saturated with fat. That's gone on there too. So yeah, something very, very important has happened. So one of the things I do in the book is try to look at, you know, some of the reasons why. And there are many reasons why, but it seems to me, from my conclusion and the other experts I read, that in many ways it's because of fundamental differences in the way that we eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, very much so. And I'll say this too, I'll preface this on our conversation. You say in your book that you know folks should always consult with their health care providers, their nutritionists, before embarking on any big changes in their diet and exercise. And, and you really, you, you say that in your book too, but these are things that you have researched that you have found, one of those being the growing rate in obesity and I mean, is it the food we're eating? Is it the exercise that we're not doing? Is it all of the different distractions we have nowadays, the computers? You, you get the idea, all of the different devices out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, in, those, in some ways, those things all play a factor, and some of them are even interrelated. Like, you know, if we're, if we're eating the wrong kinds of food, and by that, I mean, for the most part, kind of moving away from natural foods, fruits, vegetables, grain, dairy, and eating more and more packaged and processed foods, you know, as we're doing that, then it seems very possible, you know, that's contributing to our weight gain, but it's also tends to make us more tired and less inclined to exercise. So, so that food factor also can reach into the exercise factor and have negative impacts uh, in both directions. But, but kind of the good news is, you know, if we can turn things around uh, by, by, by changing our diet, and again, just as you said, the, the nature of those changes can change from a person to person, depending on your own age, your own, 
individual genetics, you, what, what condition, medical conditions you may or may not have. But if we can find the proper ways to eat for us, we're also likely to be less hungry all the time, making it easier to eat less. Right. And our energy level is likely to increase, making us feel you know, more likely to go out and either exercise or just do those normal physical activities that we need to do, like you know, get out and, and mow the lawn or something. Yeah. It's interesting. Just after reading your book, I've already made a few changes in my diet. And, and these are things that, again... People are doing already, you hear about the keto diet, uh, ketogenics, those sorts of things. But one of the things that you seem to lean toward in your book is trying to back off a little bit on the carbs and lean more toward the proteins and the healthy fats. Now, again, you say everybody's different. Everybody has to find their own balance in, in how they eat and what feels good to them. But this seems to be a direction that you like to go in. Uh, yeah, yes, that is true. And I point out that in the past, I've written on this topic, and I, I was actually kind of down on the, the low-carbohydrate diets because I did a very low-carbohydrate diet once as a teenager for a bodybuilding contest and lost a lot of weight, but then ate ravenously afterwards and regained 20 pounds in one week. So I thought, boy, I'm never going to do that again. But then as I looked back years later, I realized that for, for these bodybuilding contests, the diet was kind of extreme. It might be, you know, diet soda and tuna and lettuce, you know, and not a whole lot more. Right. So not only was my diet at that time low carbohydrate, it was also low fat and probably low protein too. So what I discovered, you know, well, gosh, what was it? 20, 40 years later is that when I reduce my carbohydrate, not totally eliminate them, but for myself, it's usually under 50, 60 grams a day. Mm-hmm. When I reduce that and eat more healthy fat, and by that I mean just the fats that naturally occur in, in meats and eggs and olives and avocados and things like that, that, that I was able to drop, actually, I think 30 pounds in like five months, and I've kept it off now for, for nearly two years rather effortlessly when my carbohydrates were lower, but they were properly balanced by high-quality protein and a you know, fair measure of normal uh, fats that have been around with us forever in, uh, in history. And I, and I do point out, too, David, that yeah, I mean, I personally have found great benefit from the keto, but it may not be necessary for everybody. So, but So kind of the underlying, probably even more fundamental message I put in the book is the idea of trying to eat more real food and less food that's been kind of man-made and ultra-processed, because that also tends to be food that is lower in, in nutrients and higher in things like uh, like sugar and artificially produced fats that we probably really don't need. Right. Yeah, so really what you're saying here is, yes, you you lean toward that low-carb style of eating, but really for everybody, more than anything else, just stay away from the processed foods and stick with the whole foods like our ancestors in the Bible. Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, that also, you know, it's correlational. It's not like a a controlled scientific study, but, you know, we've said, boy, you know, the the children now, almost four times as many as obese as they were in the past. What's going on there? In the Journal of the American Medical Association had done some surveys, and I know they pointed out that by, by 1999, we're already into this obesity epidemic, they found that kids were eating like 61% of their diet was this ultra-processed packaged food, mm. you know, as opposed to basic, you know, foods that are, they're, they're, they don't have an ingredient list. They are their own ingredient, you know, oranges, apples, eggs, and, and so forth. So 61% of their diet in 1999 was this, you know, artificial food. By 2014, it had risen even further 
to 67 percent. So this is for Americans from ages 2 to 18. So we have seen this drastic movement away from real food and towards this ultra-processed food. And if, if you buy into the theory like I do, that the real foods are also much more likely to satisfy you, satisfy your cravings, then it really makes sense that part of the reason we're you know, battling this bulge the way we are is probably because we're eating far too many uh, ultra-processed packaged foods. Right. And I think about myself, too, and trying to, you hear this about when you're shopping, stay in the outer aisles where the produce is and uh, where the dairy is and some of those items versus going into the inner things and buying all the box and packaged foods. Oh, yeah. You know, and I remember hearing that for decades. Oh, I, I like that idea, but I didn't really take it very seriously. But actually, the last two years, my wife and I, when we go grocery shopping, that's almost exactly what we do. Yeah. We're around the outside of the stores and taking our time, getting our fruits and vegetables and going to the dairy section and the meat section and, and fish and so on. But then we kind of just like, it's almost like we're doing aerobics in the inner aisles. We just zoom up and down. Well, maybe <laughs> we're going to pick up some coffee, you know. Right. But thankfully, it's very little, very, very little inside anymore now, actually. And we just both feel so much better. And, and, and our meals are actually far simpler to prepare, too, just sticking more to real foods. No, that's very true. I, I love that idea of, for example, kind of your suggestion last night. All I did was I took some grass-fed ground beef, some a couple of eggs, and some leaves of baby spinach. And I just kind of made, cooked it up in a, in a uh, cast iron dish. And it was so good. Add some spices to it. And it was it couldn't have been simpler to make. Oh, yeah. And that, that's a beautiful meal. You know, you have a very good sources of high quality protein and the grass fed beef and, and the eggs. And you're also getting the, the healthy natural fats that occur in them and the fat soluble vitamins that come along with them. Was it spinach that you added? I think you said it did, so yeah, spinach. additional vegetables, some fiber there. You're, you're getting your greens. So, yeah, I mean, meals could be very simply based around like. You know, basically one pr- pr- fat and protein dish, and then on the side, you know, a vegetable or perhaps a fruit. Yeah, meals can be very, very simple. Because I know my wife and I, we, we used to be, even the kids are growing up, a meal meant you got five or six different things sitting there. And we've discovered we really don't need that many. Two or three will often fit the bill. Right. Yeah, and one of the things, too, that you've seen over the years or read about over the years, and it's kind of ba- bounced around, and you never quite know where to go with it, and that is healthy fats versus cholesterol or high levels of cholesterol. If you have a high level of cholesterol in you and, oh, you, you know, you should stay away from the fats, stay away from the butter, stay away from the whole milk products, eggs, those sorts of things. Your, your thoughts on that? Yeah, and in this one, I would say, like, if, if a listener actually has a cholesterol problem, you know, defer to your doctor here for your particular case. Right. But, but just in general, yes, for, for many decades, the, the advice was, in our official dietary guidelines, to try to avoid foods high in cholesterol, things like egg yolks, uh, shrimp is another one, you know, animal foods in general, or, you know, give you the cholesterol. But over time, it became far more apparent that I think it's estimated our body produces about 80% of the cholesterol in us. And eating additional cholesterol for most people doesn't really have much of an impact on the cholesterol within your blood because if you if you're taking in a lot of cholesterol your body is going to compensate by by producing less so over time some of those recommendations have been kind of phased out though many people don't realize that Mm. so so now you're not getting the same kind of emphasis on on eliminating cholesterol from your diet and in that laboratory value of total cholesterol 
Uh, it's not considered as important as it used to be. We've become more nuanced there. Also factoring in things like, you know, the proportion of uh, LDL, low-density lipoproteins that carry cholesterol or high-density, other blood lipid things like, like triglycerides. And I will say that often, you know, for some people, like myself now, I eat a diet with, with quite a bit of natural fat, including saturated fat in it. Mm-hmm. I just had my uh, physical and my triglycerides, a measure of fat in the blood, I know that they're supposed to be under 140 to be considered good and healthy. And I, this time, mine were 88, the lowest they've ever been. Wow. And at the same time, my HDL was higher than it had ever been. And this is when I had gone, at that point, almost two years of eating far more fat than I ever did. But it's virtually almost all entirely food that, fat that naturally incurs in foods, not, not added you know, manufactured oil. Right, right. Well, that, that's very interesting. And I don't know if you've ever read the book, and this is one that I, I read, gosh, it's been quite a few years ago, and I and I, I kind of liked it. I mean, I enjoyed what it was talking about. Again, how accurate it is, you know, you kind of have to judge for yourself when you eat and how you feel. But this was about eating for your blood type. And I was a, or a type O type blood, and mm-hmm. that was more of the meat eaters, uh, the the original blood type. Uh, have you ever seen that one? You know, I, I've not read that, but I have heard of it. Yeah. And I don't know for sure, you know, how to evaluate it. But on the face value, there there are significant individual, individual differences in us. And we can be grouped together by the ones that we share with other people. So, I mean, I, I can't say for sure. Yeah, it, it's possible. I mean, it seems... It seems reasonable because there are definitely different people are impacted by different kinds of foods. And kind of part of what we need to do is find out what really meshes best uh, with our own body. Yeah, very much so. I want to talk about, too, about fasting, because certainly that has been a big part of many faiths throughout the centuries, obviously, including our Catholic faith. And here we are in Lent, so it goes right along with that. But you, you mm-hmm. talk about fasting in your book. And again, I, I kind of find fasting a fascinating look on how we incorporate that into our lives and into our diets. Yeah, and I've been reading up on it mostly just in the last few years because, again, you know, I came from this weightlifting, bodybuilding background in the 70s and 80s, and, and the mantra was like the exact opposite of fasting. Keep that body pumped up with fuel. Eat, you know, every two to three hours. Uh, so I always had this idea, well, if I'm going to fast, if I'm going to go a period of time without food, that means I'm going to shrink, I'm going to get weaker, I'm going to get smaller, I'm going to get tired. But but I have found in recent times that, no, I mean, well, the, the wisdom of the Church for spiritual reasons for, for so long uh, also has physical benefits. It, it can do our body good to have a rest from the constant, constant digestive processes, from constantly making our pancreas excrete insulin to deal with the sugars we take in. So, so I have found, I mean, there can be great, you know, physical, in addition to spiritual benefits from fasting, and again, it's something that can apply, you know, in different ways to different people. One of the most simple ways I use it now is, uh, before I changed my diet, I would, like, eat at nighttime watching TV, and I might uh, have something sweet and say, oh, wow, that's too much sweet. I need something salty now, you know, and then right. I need something salty, and oh, boy, I need something sweet to kind of tone that down. You kind of keep back going back and forth, but anyway, now, after supper, maybe some small, you know, sugar-free dessert, I usually stop eating at 5.30 p.m. It just works for me, and I'm an early riser. And then I get up in the morning at like, you know, 4 or 5 in the morning and have a a cup or two of black coffee and water. Then I go to the gym and and work out. So I end up eating at maybe 7.30 in the morning. So Mm -hmm. for me, it's, it's only, you know, 14 hours I go, you know, you know, fasting. And for me, that's enough to make me feel good and make a difference. And another way some people do this with time restricted eating is just to, you know, eliminate the snacks between meals. 
And, and sometimes, like myself, I found during our warmer weather periods of the summer, I often kind of naturally gravitate even towards skipping lunch and just having two meals a day and being quite satisfied by it. And I will, I'm sorry, I'm going to go on and say one other thing too. People who are used to taking in a lot of sugar may have a hard time imagining that because I would have in the past, like if I was going to give a talk or something, it's like, I'm going to make sure I've eaten a couple hours before so I don't crash. You know? right. But when we move away from the sugars and kind of get, adapt our body to functioning more on fat as a fuel, we really tend to become more mentally sharp and have energy. You know, when it's been several hours since we've last eaten. Right. And I will mention, too, in your book, I mean, we're just kind of touching the surface here on on some of the generalities of your book, but you get into specifics. You get more into the science science of things that are happening in your body, the insulin, why it's occurring, those sorts of things. So I, again, I, I encourage people, if you want to learn more and, and get hear more of the science behind this, You Are That Temple, Kevin's book, gets into that a little bit more in depth, and uh, you deal with it more than we are here in broader terms. So uh, yeah, I, I just give people the heads up on that if they want to get a little bit more into the science of it as, as, we, as we talk about it. Well, look, let's turn our attention to fitness now and exercise, because I've always believed, and as you say in your book too, you can have the nutritional aspect of your life, but there's got to be some movement involved there as well if you really want to have a healthy lifestyle. And and you talk about that. There does have to be some movement. You know, yes, exactly. And, and kind of one fascinating area is that some recent researchers showed all these benefits to the brain that come with exercise. You know, both with the kind of strength training exercise like calisthenics or weightlifting and also with endurance exercise, be it running or swimming or biking or, or walking. So there's all kinds of health benefits that accrue from that proper exercise. And another area that's a big area in research is, you know, our population, you know, is, is uh, aging. We have some, you know, the baby boomers are getting older. There's more of us who are getting up there than ever before. And if we're going to preserve our function as we get into later years, there's almost nothing more important than stimulating our muscles with exercise. Because it's the old saw, you know, use it or lose it is really true. Right. Uh, we can maintain more muscle mass, which will make us more able to do the basic activities of life, you know, even just getting up out of a chair and walking or when we're a little younger, maybe, you know, being able to carry our grandchildren around. So there's real positive benefits uh, that will come to us if we train our bodies to be strong and enduring, you know, as much as, you know, we, we reasonably can throughout our lifespan. In the book, you kind of break it down, too, in, in fitness in regards to there is the weight training, the strength training, if you will, versus the cardio, which would be running, swimming, biking, those sorts of things. And you you lean toward, I, I think, as I gathered from your book, like you can do a little of both, but you don't have to overdo it. You don't have to be totally exhausted to get in a good workout. In fact, that's kind of defeating the point. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And even there, I give a quote from Pope Pius Twelfth, where he talked about the church being all for physical culture or proper care of the body if it's kept in proper proportion. So, right. so yeah, we want to keep it. Yeah, and he even says exercise should energize us and not drain us. So we shouldn't overdo it. And I say like for strength training, I mean, it can literally be as little as one workout that takes less than a half an hour one day a week can have measurable, measurable improvements in, in one's strength, uh, you know, and, and maintaining one's muscle mass. And for the aerobic training, it doesn't have to be, you know, running sprints and exhausting yourself. You know, simple activities like walking on a regular basis, even if it's walking your dog or, or mowing your lawn or vacuuming your carpets, 
a milder form of exercise done, you know, in a, in a reasonable amount almost every day can just also give you a wonderful health benefit. So it's not a matter of having to huff and puff and sweat for hours every day. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I love that section of the book where you talk about just everyday activities that you can count for physical activity. And I noticed this myself during the spring and summer months going out and doing yard work, mowing the yard, being in the garden. I mean, you can come in from a good couple of hours of yard work and you, you've gotten a good workout in. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm the weightlifter of the family, but my wife is the gardener of the family. And on a good summer day, boy, she outlasts me by a long shot. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. How, how important is strength training, too? Because me of an older age now, you lose muscle mass, of course, as you gain, as you get older. So how is important is it to incorporate some form of strength training into your workout routine? Yeah, well, it, it really is important if, you, if you're able to. I do cite one study from a medical doctor where he said that 80-year-old men who were doing strength training were able to have the strength equal to normal 30-year-olds who didn't work out. So 80-year-olds working out compared to 30-year-olds who didn't, and they had comparable strength. I mean, so it's, it's, it's significant. It really can have a powerful effect even later in our life. And I talk about some methods of training, this, this method called a super slow, where you do very kind of slow motion strength training exercises, was actually developed with the elderly with osteoporosis to be very, you know, joint friendly. And two, when, when people look at what predicts our ability to stay functional later in life, muscle size and strength, they're like the top predictors. Even something as simple, and this has been shown for decades, is measuring a person's grip strength, you know, just the power, the strength that's in their form and grip right. is a very good predictor of longevity and functionality later in life because it's kind of a proxy for the way the muscles in our rest of our body have been maintained too. So I would say, you know, if you're physically able to do it, if your doctor permits it, even mild and gentle strength training can make a real difference in the later years. Yeah, and I love the way in the book how you give some examples of different types of exercise, uh, weight training exercise in particular, about where you can do, if you want to even incorporate some cardio, you can do a lot of uh, light reps and get that heart rate up. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, you, you, know, you can use weight or circuit training going from one part of the body to the next and, and maintain your heart rate. You know, in in that you know aerobic range by weight training. So there's just so many different ways. That's kind of the beauty that I try to show too. You know, I'm I'm a weightlifter. I have a chapter on you know heavy barbell training, and I have one on heavy machine training, one on these cable and dumbbell exercises. But there's even so many ways beyond that. Uh, you know, people can use kettlebells, they can use household objects, they can do body weight exercises. So there, there's some way to train that's probably going to work and be appealing to almost everybody. And I, I like it. I think there was one example in there where it was like a just like an eleven minute routine. Oh yeah, yeah. For one of the, the they call hit or high intensity yeah. interval training, you can get on an exercise bike or, or a treadmill, and yeah, you do a warm up for a few minutes, and then like you go kind of hard for a minute, and back off for a minute, and repeat that a couple of times, and then cool back down. And yeah, in eleven or twelve minutes, you've got a pretty thorough workout. Yeah, one of the things I've I've tried to do, you know, being here in in the Northwest, a little cooler, so it's this is a little easier for me at least when the weather warms up in the spring and summer but i just like to go over to a track and where i would used to say okay i'm going to go over to the track and i'm going to run three miles on the track and it, you know if it's warm boy i'd be i'd be exhausted after three miles if i've got if i'm mm -hmm. going at a pretty good pace and so 
what I've tried to do in kind of incorporating what you're talking about is maybe only running one mile, but then doing interval wind sprints and trying to, you know, diversify that. Oh, yeah. And I think that's an, an excellent approach, you know. And with some of the younger fit athletes, they found that from these super brief workouts, if they were pretty hard, you know, they were getting equal or even better benefits, you know, from the heart and lung capacity. So what you described, uh, you know, not not just one real long steady state, but have some steady state activity, resting, and then, and then hard, easy, hard, easy. I mean, you kind of got it all there. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great, great workout to do it that way. And again, I like it when I can get a workout in, and like you say in the book, I don't go home and feel like I just have to crash on the floor, and that's it for the day. I'm done. I can't do anything else. Again, that seems like you're defeating the purpose a little bit versus getting in a good workout, getting in some good exercise, but then feeling energized, and I think that's what you really want to do. And I think it helps, at least for me, and these are some of the issues I struggle with, digestion. You know, and, and you, you kind of incorporate these things, and that helps your digestion as well. Yeah, yeah, it, it certainly does. The, the exercise can, and if you can, you know, maybe try dietary changes, you might find certain foods were, were disturbing. You know, like, like, I would get bad reflux at night that would even wake me up at times. And once I started eliminating a lot of the grains and carbohydrates, that completely disappeared. Yeah, very much so. So what are we missing here, Kevin? Uh, Again, the book is You Are That Temple, A Catholic Guide to Health and Holiness. We we covered some of the food ideas in the book, some of the exercise ideas in the book. What else are we missing here? What what, what would you like to bring up? Oh, if if I could just briefly, two two things. One, I just want to make sure to people it's not like a, a cult of the body that Oh gosh, I'm out of shape, so I'm I'm dishonoring my body, and God's disappointed in me. Right. Well, no, not necessarily so. We're just called to be good stewards. So I do have a chapter two where I talk about people with mental and physical disabilities, pointing out that everybody is a temple of the Holy Spirit, regardless of what it looks like. You know, regardless of what the shape we're in. You know, we're made in the image and likeness of God, and and our body's a beautiful, wonderful thing. So I say, even if a person you know is paralyzed, they can't exercise at all. You know, maybe they can have some control over the kind of foods they eat to try to keep that healthy, or they can learn about exercise and nutrition and try to pass that information along to their grandchildren, you know, so, but just in general, keep remembering that everybody is a beautiful temple, regardless of what shape it happens to be in at this point in time. And then I want to say, too, one of the things that excites me most about uh, You Are That Temple is that it concludes with 23 what I call temple tender tales. And these are like brief personal stories from 23 modern-day Catholics and, and, you know, how they maintain their health and fitness and how taking care of their body has, has helped them in their spirituality and in their, and just reducing mental stress and a variety of things. So, so I was blessed by the fact that 23 people, I think it's 18 men, and five women were, were willing to share their stories. Uh, that, that's wonderful. Again, the book is You Are That Temple, A Catholic Guide to Health and Holiness by the author Kevin Vost, who joins us on the podcast this morning. So, Kevin, great to talk with you, and and again, I love the book. Remind folks where they can get a hold of the book if they'd like to. Sure. The book is by Sophia Institute Press, so their website is sophiainstitute.com. And I usually like to point out, too, if you happen to be fortunate and blessed to have a, a Catholic bookstore in your area, they may have it or be able to get it. All right, very good. Again, it is a wonderful book, You Are That Temple, by author Kevin Vost. Well, thanks so much for listening to the On The Go podcast. This podcast is available on the Hail Mary Media app. 
brought to you by Mater Day Radio. I'm David Endress. Kevin, thanks again. Well, thanks so much. All My right. pleasure. And we'll talk to you soon.